Hey everyone, I'm Dominique. And I'm Heidi. Welcome to Morgrats. We're glad you decided to waste some time with us. By the way, if you guys want to send us a note, there are many ways to contact us. You can send us an email at morgratspod at gmail.com. Our Instagram page is morgratspod. Or our Facebook page is just morgrats. All right, TikTok and Twitter coming soon, hopefully. And we're also now on Amazon Music and Audible. We're also working on a website, but neither one of us are very techy, and we'll have to get help from one of our kids, but it is in the works. Yes, it is. So, well, before we start, we want to remind you that we are talking about death. If you're easily offended by rude humor and foul language or are particularly sensitive to discussions about death, you may want to pass on this podcast. We are wildly inappropriate at times, but that comes directly from growing up in a funeral home. The way we insulate ourselves is by humor, and for us, it's a lot better to laugh even when you feel like crying. Today's episode deals with corpses on the move. For our death story, we'll talk about a very bizarre case from 1973. Our funeral home story will be about an interesting adventure Dominique and I shared with a dead body. Interesting to say the least. Well, as always, if this subject matter makes you uncomfortable, please feel free to skip. That said, welcome to episode seven, Road Trip. Heidi, do you keep your promises? Of course. I mean, some are hard, not impossible hard, just, you know, juicy hard. But yes, <laughs> I do. Well, okay. Have you ever made a promise you wish you didn't have to keep? Mm, pretty careful with my promises, so I don't think so. Okay, but we can agree it's probably not a good idea to make a promise you're not sure you can keep. Yes, absolutely. That is not a good idea. And Agreed. it's you should never make a promise when you're drunk. Absolutely not. That is a terrible idea. Well, this story boils down to a drunken promise made between two friends, and it is crazy. Ooh, I can't wait. We're going to talk about the death, corpse snapping, and illegal cremation of Graham Parsons. Corpse napping? Yes. Like kidnapping. Corpse yes. napping. Cor- corpse snapping. Okay. Yes. And, corpse uh, snapping, it sounds like. Corpse, corpse snapping. <laughs> Snapping corpses. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, a little bit about Graham Parsons. He was a musician in the 60s and early 70s, and though his career was relatively short, he was extremely influential in fusing country, folk, and rock music. Graham was a member of the bands The Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers, and among others, before he went solo. Flying things and Mexican food. (laughs) Did he call himself the Soaring Chalupa? (laughs) Anyway, though Graham's family was wealthy and influential, his grandfather owned one third of the citrus, all the citrus orchards in Florida. Um, Despite that, he had a bit of an unhappy childhood. His father committed suicide when Graham was 12. Even though his mother remarried, the day Graham graduated from high school, she died of either alcohol poisoning or cirrhosis. She basically drank herself to death. Yes. His stepfather had adopted both Graham and his sister, so they still had a parent. Graham developed a great interest in music, and while in his teens, he played in a few bands. Let me guess, the airborne enchiladas. Well, they performed in coffee houses, high school auditoriums, and headlined in venues owned by his stepfather. 
Graham was admitted to Harvard, not for his grades, but for writing a great admissions essay. Or probably more likely because his family's money and their influential connections. Well, that could be. That could be. Well, Graham dropped out of Harvard after only four months and decided to pursue a career in music. If you're interested in music, you really should read up on Graham Parsons. He was a major influence on not just music in general, but in the careers of the Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, Emmy Lou Harris. Okay, okay. And one penny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the good stuff. Okay. Well, it's no surprise that Graham drank heavily, with both parents being alcoholics. He also did copious amounts of drugs, as did many of his friends, but that was common for the times. Fast forward to a few months before Graham's death. Graham and his friend Phil were attending the funeral of another friend who had died after being hit by a drunk driver. Now, Graham and Phil had had a few drinks before the funeral. And so they drove drunk to the funeral of a friend who was killed by a drunk driver. Yes. But, but we're, we're not, not fucking judging. judging. <laughs> well, they were put off by the Catholic mass with its rituals and formality. During the funeral, Graham looked over at Phil and said, this is bullshit. Clarence wouldn't have wanted this. And right there, the two promised each other that if one of them died, the other would take the bo their body to Joshua Tree National Park in the Mojave Desert in California and burn it. That is one hell of a promise. Yeah. And really one you would think you would never have to fulfill. Right, right. Well, in September of 1973, Graham had finished a solo album and decided it was time to celebrate with his friends. He booked some rooms at the Joshua Tree Inn and they all set out to have a good time. Graham loved Joshua Tree and had been a guest at the inn many times before. Now with Graham were his friends, Phil and another guy named Michael and two women, Dale and Margaret. Graham and Margaret were doing morphine in one room and at some point during the night, Margaret barges into Phil and Dale and Michael's room, hysterical saying Graham had overdosed. But apparently Margaret had been in this situation before because rather than call an ambulance, she put on her paramedic hat. Margaret ran to the ice machine, came back to the room, pulled Graham's pants down, and shoved three ice cubes up his ass. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, that would wake me up. <laughs> yes. Well, Graham came around and even joked about what they were doing with his pants down. He started walking around like he wasn't even just on the verge of death. Dale later said she had never seen anything like it in her life. Well, about an hour later, Margaret wanted to go get some food. So she asked Phil if he would keep an eye on Graham because Graham was now sleeping. Phil said, sure, grabbed a book and went into Graham's room. Well, after about 20 minutes, Phil grew scared when he noticed that Graham's breathing had become labored. He called to Dale, who began mouth to mouth, and Margaret, who had just returned from getting the food, alerted the inn's office staff who called the ambulance. Graham was taken to the hospital, but he couldn't be revived and he was 26 years old when he wow. died. That's way too young. Well, now get to the corpse napping. I'm very intrigued. Okay, well, after a few days, Phil, who was back at home in Los Angeles, was growing antsy because he had to fulfill his promise to Graham. Phil called the mortuary in Joshua Tree to find out where Graham's body was and was told that it was en route to Los Angeles International Airport, where he would be shipped to Louisiana per his stepfather's instructions. Upon learning this, Phil called Dale, who happened to have a Cadillac hearse. <laughs> totally normal. It's totally normal to have a hearse in your fleet of vehicles. Yes. 
<laughs> yep. Well, Phil called Michael and they gathered their liquid courage of Jose Cuervo, Jose Cuervo tequila, Jack Daniels whiskey, Jim Beam bourbon, and Mickey Big Mouth beer. Wow. <laughs> so Jose, Jack, Jim, Mickey, and the others went to take care of business. That's right. Okay. Take care of business is quite the team. Well, um, Phil and Michael drove the hearse to Los Angeles International Airport. They found the hangar where all the caskets were kept prior to departure. Since Phil and Michael were drunk, the airport employee was very suspicious. Phil told the airport worker that the family had changed their minds and that he and Michael had been called in and were working overtime to get this body to the correct place. Oddly enough, a police officer showed up at the hangar and Phil, brave from intoxication, called to the cop and said, hey, come help us with this stiff. And you know what? The officer did. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Then Phil signed a paper with a fake name and he, Michael, and Graham's body started the three-hour drive to Joshua Tree, only stopping once at a gas station to purchase five gallons of gasoline. When they reached Cap Rock, which is a popular monument in Joshua Tree, Phil and Michael pulled the casket out of the hearse. Michael didn't want to open the casket, but Phil insisted that they say goodbye to Graham. Graham's body was naked and there was surgical tape over the autopsy incisions. Phil said the last thing he did was, you know, that thing where you put your, point your finger at a friend's chest and then when they look down, you zip your finger up to their nose? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he said that's the last thing he did to Graham. That's cheating. Graham didn't look down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, the, and then, uh, who am I talking about? Phil? Phil. Yeah. Phil, um, poured the five gallons of gas over the corpse and he said, all right, Graham on your way and dropped a lighted match. The body and the casket went up with a whoosh and Phil and Michael saw headlights in the distance. So they got the hell out of there. Later, a call came into the sheriff's office about a burning casket with a body inside. The casket had mostly burned away, and the body was severely charred. Though the genitalia and the facial... <laughs> what? <laughs> Isn't there a song about that? Yeah. Show me, show me your genitals. Your genitalia. <laughs> so funny. You guys check that out on YouTube. It's so funny. Show me your genitals. Hmm. Well, okay, as I was saying, though the genitalia and the facial features were destroyed by the fire, the coroner could tell the body had been autopsied and embalmed. A yellow metal ring with a red stone was discovered near the body, and it looked like the one belonging to Graham. So, did they ever get caught? Well, when it was all said and done, Phil and Michael were given 30-day suspended sentences and fined $300 each. Apparently, the only thing they could be charged with was stealing the casket because the body has no intrinsic value. Graham was eventually transported to Louisiana and buried as his stepfather intended. The incident is referred to as Grand Theft Parsons, and there is a movie by that title starring Johnny Knoxville and Christina Applegate. I'll bet Phil never pursued a career in politics. Why do you say that? Because he keeps his promises. <laughs> <laughs> we got our information from loudersound.com, cinema.com, history.com, and Wikipedia. 
Are you ready to get into our funeral home story? You know I am. All right. Well, before we start this story, I want to let people know that dead bodies fly on planes all the time. In fact, if you're on a plane, chances are there is a casket in the hole. But in our funeral home, we often drove deceased individuals to their final destinations. And the reason is twofold. If you fly a body to another city, there's the airfare, of course. Well, and opposed to breathing customers, they get charged by the weight. And it's dead weight. Dead weight, yes. (laughs) And then there also must be what is called a receiving funeral home to receive the body. As you can guess, having two funeral homes involved gets expensive. Yeah, our fee for driving a person can be spendy, especially if it's thousands of miles, but it's still usually less expensive than getting another funeral home involved. Also, we live in a small town and we know or at least acquainted with the families we serve. A lot of people would rather just deal with us throughout the whole process than deal with people they don't know. I just wanted to clarify that before telling the story. Also, names have been changed. Even though she has a busy career that has nothing to do with the funeral service, my sister is always up to go do something. It seems she is never idle, always traveling somewhere or another, unlike me, who prefers to stay holed up at home. She often asks me to go out and do stuff with her and has become accustomed to my standard answer of no. Luckily, she doesn't hold it against me, and when I ask her to go somewhere, her answer is usually yes. So when I asked her to travel 1,200 miles to keep me company as I delivered a body to a cemetery, I knew she would go. That will be fun, Heidi says in her usual bubbly way. When do we leave? Tomorrow if you can. I cringe, knowing such short notice would send me into a tailspin if the roles were reversed. We'll have to spend four nights on the road. As usual, this rolls off my sister like I'd asked her to hand me the remote. Let me rearrange some things. What time do you want me to head out? An audible sigh leaves me. The earlier the better. It's a long drive. I'll be there at 6 a.m. The next morning, Heidi shows up wearing leggings, sweatshirt, and no bra. Perfect driving clothes. It's a given she will be the driver. She's a control freak. Aw, man. We're not taking the hearse? She actually stomps her foot. No, this is just going to be a delivery, and Derek needs the hearse here for a funeral tomorrow. Damn, I love driving the hearse. People get so freaked out. Again, I am relieved this isn't a deal breaker for her. We load Mr. Jones into the van, grab coffee at a local drive-thru, and properly head off for the first leg of our long journey. There are no moments of uncomfortable silence. We chatter and sing and laugh. We talk about how unbelievable it is that we hated each other in middle school. Several hours into our drive, we need gas. We pull off the freeway, and since we are now in a state where it's illegal to pump your own fuel, Heidi rolls down her window and waits for the attendant. She gives me a sly smile. Watch this. A boy in his late teens comes to her window. Fill her up, he asks. Yes, please. She hands him my company credit card. Hey. Heidi's voice is mercilessly flirty. Want to guess what's in the back of this van? The boy glances at the tinted windows, but they are dark so he can't see anything within. Sure, he says. Heidi leans a little out the window. A dead body. The boy's face falls. He swallows, then turns to the pump, quickly swipes the credit card, and hands it back through the window. He jogs to the convenience store and closes the door behind him. Heidi and I laugh like crazy. That was so mean, I say. Bet he gets someone else to take the nozzle out. Heidi laughs. 
No, he can't be that much of a scaredy cat. We bet five bucks. Soon, the pump clicks, and a short, fat, balding old man waddles through the convenience store doors. He removes the nozzle and places it back where it belongs. He doesn't even ask us if we want a receipt. Heidi holds out her hand, palm up. Five bucks, please. For hours, we continue down the freeway, crossing from the Pacific to the mountain time zone and deciding the best place to stop for the night. It's 10 p.m. when we pull into a day's inn not far off the road. This is when the first wave of anxiety hits me. What, what if somebody steals the van? Heidi parks under the covered entrance to the motel. It's well lit, but not meant for long-term parking. Maybe we could keep it here. We walk into the lobby, looking exactly like two people who have been driving all day. A young woman with tattoos on her neck greets us. Once we've booked the room, I blurt out, is it okay to keep the van there for the night? There's a casket in there and I... With a body? She asks, her eyes widening, but not with disgust. Yes, I say, I just want it to be safe. The girl smiles. No problem. I just started my shift and I'm here all night. I'll be happy to keep an eye on it. She has a straight on view to the van and is looking at it curiously. After we thank her and make our way to our room, I worry she will call all of her friends over and try and break into the van so they can all gawk at Mr. Jones in his casket. The next day, I brush my teeth and uh, really- Fact check. Hmm? Fact what? check. Fact check? Yeah. Why? Because you just said you brushed your teeth. <laughs> Okay, just side side note. Dominique does not brush her teeth on Sundays. It's a day of rest. Okay. <laughs> the next day was Saturday, so I brushed my oh. teeth. <laughs> okay. The next day, I brush my teeth and reach for my medication, which I take every morning for generalized anxiety disorder. Fuck, I yell. What? Heidi is pulling on the same skanky leggings she wore the day before. <laughs> Sorry. I was thinking of it. Heidi is pulling on the same leggings she wore the day before. What's wrong? I think I left my meds on the kitchen counter. I continue to dig through my backpack, growing more panicky by the second. Oh, crap. Are you going to be okay? I think of the time I went off my medication cold turkey, unbeknownst to my doctor. The withdrawal symptoms were so bad, I ended up having a brain scan because my doctor didn't know what was wrong, and I, like an idiot, hadn't told him I'd gone off the meds. And of course, I didn't make the correlation. Brain zaps, vision problems, trouble swallowing, tingly skin, headaches, nausea. This was all something I had to look forward to without my medication. Not to mention I had nothing in my system to fight my crippling anxiety. Uh, I'm just gonna be a little uncomfortable until we get home. It's, it's no big deal. I know if I tell my sister the truth, she'll drive me directly to an emergency room and demand enough pills to get me through the trip. Luckily, she believes me and we head for the car. To my relief, the van is exactly where we parked it last night and by 7 a.m. we are back on the road, armed with motel lobby coffee and bags of chips from the vending machine. Four hours into this leg, my face begins to tingle and I feel a little nauseous. The nagging sense that something is going to go terribly wrong has crept inside my head and planted itself firmly behind my eyeballs. 
We drive into the evening, and even though we aren't supposed to deliver Mr. Jones until tomorrow, I insist on finding the cemetery tonight. The cemetery workers have given me a strict timeline of when to be there, and I want to know precisely where we are going. It's dark by the time we make it to Smithville Cemetery, where we are to deliver Mr. Jones between 10 and 11 tomorrow morning. Heidi turns to me and says, There, you've seen it and we know where we're going. Can we please find a room now? Smithville is a tiny town, even smaller than our hometown, and there is nowhere for us to stay. We have to backtrack 15 miles to find the closest accommodation. Not ideal, but totally doable. God, I can't wait to get out of this car. Heidi grumbles. Me too, I say. I need to wash my ass. (laughs) She honestly said that. I could not believe it. Who says that? Someone with a dirty ass. (laughs) So gross. I'm just a disgusting person. Okay. She spots a vacancy sign ahead and pulls into the parking lot of a mom and pop motel. Good, there's a restaurant. We'll sleep a bit, have breakfast, then drop off Mr. Jones and head home. There's no place to park, I say, fear lacing my voice. Heidi looks around. There's an entire parking lot. No, I mean by the office where someone can watch the van. Heidi takes a deep breath. I know she thinks I'm overreacting, that no one's going to steal the van. But she's also seen me in the throes of a full-on panic attack and knows my reality is different from hers. Calmly, she places her hand on my leg. I'll make sure we get a room that has a parking spot right outside the window. She takes my company credit card and walks into the office, leaving me in the van with my increasingly fatalistic thoughts. Heidi secures room nine. I hate the number nine and take it as a bad omen. She parks directly in front of the window and collects her backpack. When I don't move, she says, Come on, let's go. I I think I'll stay here. It's warm enough. My sister looks at me like I'm a two-year-old. You're not staying in the car. Come on. What if someone... I stop. I know I sound ridiculous, but Heidi knows me. Listen, let's go inside, get some rest. Tomorrow this will all be over. Can we take shifts watching it? The words tumble out of my mouth, and even I can't believe I'm saying this. Heidi doesn't bat an eye. Sure. Okay, I'll go first because you've been driving all day. In my non-medicated, panic-stricken mind, this sounds completely reasonable. As my sister sleeps, I sit in a chair by the window, curtains open about three inches, staring at the van. Just when I feel so drowsy I can't keep my eyes open, Heidi wakes up and shoes me to bed. I don't close my eyes until I see she is dutifully at her post, looking out the window. Sleep comes quickly, but it seems like only a few minutes have passed when I hear Heidi yelling, Oh shit, Dominique, wake up! I awaken to my sister standing at the window, parting the curtains with her hand, bright sunlight cutting the darkened room like a a spear. I must have dozed off. I'm sorry. The van! I spring to my feet and rush to the window, all the while thinking of kidnapped bodies and headlines and legal action and prison time. It's right there. (laughs) She's laughing so hard, I think she might pee her pants, but I'm so relieved, I don't even get mad. It's 9 a.m. and we want to be at the cemetery in Smithville as close to 10 as possible, so we can put Mr. Jones in his final resting place and start the journey home. We figure it'll take about 20 minutes to get there from here, and we know we have that one hour drop-off window, so we head to the restaurant for some breakfast. We ordered the same thing we've ordered since our childhood, strawberry crepes and a ham and cheese omelet, which we split. 
My anxiety is high and I'm feeling sicker than yesterday, but I am hopeful that once Mr. Jones is safely delivered, I will be able to relax. A middle-aged wait waitress refills our coffee for the third time and asks where we're from. When we tell her Washington, she asks what brings us halfway across the country. We're going to a funeral, Heidi says quickly. She knows if she leaves it to me, I'll over-explain everything. Neither one of us look like we're dressed for a funeral. We are wearing the same leggings and t-shirts we started the trip in, and the lack of sleep from last night shows on our faces. We look like hell. Where's the funeral? The waitress asks. She seems suspicious, and I'm wondering if she's going to call the cops on us. In Smithville, just up the road. The waitress raises an eyebrow. You know about the time change, right? Heidi and I look at each other. The waitress goes on. Yeah, the time changes from Mountain to Central 10 miles from here. It is 9.40 a.m., 10.40 Central Time. We pay the bill and run out of the restaurant. Heidi drives like a mad woman. We'll make it, we'll make it. I feel like breakfast is sitting in my throat and one quick stop or turn is going to bring it up. I had strict instructions. If I'm not there by 11, they can't bury him today. I don't know how long we'll have to wait. We won't have to, we're going to make it. At 10.58, we pull into the cemetery. The grave diggers are looking at their watches. On shaky legs, I get out of the van and put on my best friendly face. I'm sorry, we wanted to be here at 10, but we didn't know about the time change. One of the, gra one of the grave diggers spits out the side of his mouth. Yeah, there used to be a sign, but it keeps getting stolen. The cemetery crew slides the casket containing Mr. Jones out of the van and places him next to an open grave beside his wife's. I give them their paperwork and their payment, then Heidi and I climb back into the van and head west for home. It takes a good hour before my anxiety level has come back down, but the withdrawals from my medication are only getting worse. My head is killing me and my skin feels like it's crawling with ants. Breakfast threatens to make an uninvited appearance. My phone rings and because it comes through the speakers in the van, it's very loud and I jump. Hello, I say. It's my husband asking how everything went at the cemetery. Heidi puts her hand on my leg, a sign that I am too stressed out to handle this conversation and she'll take care of it. It went great, easy as pie. She smiles at me, saying nothing about the unexpected time change and the deadline we almost missed, which would have left us stranded with a dead body for God knows how long. Excellent, my husband says, because someone died today and we need to take them to Southern California sometime next week. Are we up for it? He asks. Instantly, my palms start to sweat. I stare at Heidi with that deer in the headlights expression. Let me rearrange some things. I'd be glad to keep Dominique company. I'm trying not to vomit. When the call ends, I tell Heidi to pull over. The van is still rolling when I open the door and jump out. A torrent of puke cascades from me and splatters on the gravel shoulder of the highway. Ham and strawberries and coffee spurt out of my nose. I don't know someone else has pulled up until I hear a male voice ask Heidi if we need any help. No thanks, she's just a little sick. A new wave of ralphing has, has me contorted next to the van. The man asks if I'll be okay. Heidi is quick to answer. Oh yeah, we've been driving with a dead body for two days. She doesn't like it very much. I don't see the man, but I hear his feet shuffle backwards on the gravel. Then I hear his car door close and he screeches away. Heidi is at my side now, patting my back. You just love freaking people out, don't you? I say, spitting the last of the rank taste from my mouth. Yeah. She gathers my hair and holds it at the nape of my neck to keep it out of the barf. 
You're good at it. She smirks. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That was a fun trip. It was yeah well it was besides you yeah yeah it was fun (laughs) it was it was an adventure it was an adventure yes (laughs) well that's gonna do it for this episode thanks you guys for listening we really appreciate it and remember be kind any day above ground is a good one and And finally keep keep on breathing. breathing